0: Lord's Day 27, page 892, page 892 in the gray hymnal, page 892, and we're going to just begin our study of God's Word tonight by reading question and answer 74. This section of the catechism is about baptism, and I guess it's been a little while since we've been in the catechism together, but we've discussed baptism the last couple times we were in the catechism together, and Lord's Day 27 takes us uh, specifically into the realm of infant baptism, and, uh, and that's kind of going to be our focus tonight. Um, but question and answer 74 is what I want to read with you. I'll read the question. Let's read the answer together. The question, which is also the title of my message tonight, is this, should infants too be baptized? Yes. Infants, as well as adults, are in God's covenant and are His people. They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Where do we see all that? Well, let's turn now to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Or not Deuteronomy, Genesis. Thank you. Sorry, I heard you all talking. Didn't know what you are yelling at me about. Genesis 17. Genesis 17. And we'll read verses 1 through 14. And then we'll skip down and read verses... 23 through 27. So first, (coughs) verses 1 through 14, beginning at uh, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. From any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, let's skip down. I guess we'll start at verse 22. It's a new paragraph there. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thus far the reading of God's own Word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to study Your Word again tonight. And as we consider these matters of covenant and circumcision and how all that relates to baptism, we just pray that You would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to Your truth, that we might live uh, by it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I think it's good for us and for me from time to time to review the theological and scriptural basis for infant baptism. I have found too many pido baptists as they would call us, pido child child Baptist. And when asked why they baptize babies, uh, don't give usually a very good answer. It's just what we've always done, never a great answer uh, in the church. Uh, infant baptism was the common practice of the church, For the first 1,600 years of its existence, it wasn't until the 16th century, actually during the time of the Reformation, that some started to question the practice. And today, there are many who would say that infant baptism is wrong. It's not correct. And they say things like, you know, we don't see it in the New Testament, or or, baptism it's what's required of those who believe. And, you know, it's easy, I think, for us to be influenced by this. I must confess that even I, at times, uh, can be a bit swayed by these arguments and have found myself questioning the historic practice. Please don't defrock me. Uh, I've always come back to the creeds and confessions, but uh, some people who I admire and respect are reformed in every way. They baptize adults, and yes, you listen to their arguments and you process them and, and all of that. But there is, right? This is why it's good for us to review and to go through these things from time to time. That's why it's good for me to do it, because there is a good theological and scriptural basis for infant baptism. There is. And question and answer 74 of the cate- Catechism calls us to think about it, Genesis 17 helps us work through it. Uh, In Genesis 17, there are two words used repeatedly, and we're really just going to focus on these two words. Uh, The first word is covenant, covenant. Covenant is used, uh, by my calculations, 13 times in Genesis chapter 17. Now, what is a covenant? Well, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit, uh, and this word could also be translated agreement, contract, pledge, or treaty. So, if you're thinking along those lines, you're getting at what a covenant is. Now, that being said, biblical covenants, covenants where God is involved, are unique in that one party involved in the covenant, is superior to the other party. Often in our day, uh, contracts are entered into between two somewhat equal parties or between two parties that each have something to offer. You might think of an athlete, for instance. An athlete enters into a contract with a team. Both the athlete and the team They need each other, right? The athlete has talent, which the team needs, and that talent is the athlete's bargaining chip. The team has money, which the athlete needs, and that money is the team's bargaining chip. But both sides have something to offer. Both sides have something to bargain with. That is not the case with biblical covenants, at least with the covenants in which God is involved. Biblical covenants follow a pattern that was common in the ancient Near East where a conquering king would enter into covenant with a conquered people, all right? So, there's a king, he comes, he conquers a people, and then he enters into covenant with that people. Now, the conquered people really have nothing to offer so far as the relationship goes. They've been conquered, and therefore the conquering king is able to dictate the terms of the relationship. The conquering king would say, as one with the power and with the authority, right, this is how it's going to be between me and you, and you can either accept it in order that it might go well with you, or you can disregard it and you'll probably die, That's more in line with how biblical covenants work. And we see that here in Genesis 17, right? This isn't a covenant made between two somewhat equal parties. No, this is, as verse 1 says, God Almighty. That's a translation from the Hebrew word El Shaddai, right? This is God Almighty, El Shaddai, sovereignly coming to Abraham, and dictating the terms of the relationship. This is God Almighty saying, Abraham, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do for you, and this is what I expect from you in return. That's a biblical covenant. It's an agreement between two parties, but not two equal parties. It's an agreement between a greater party and a lesser party between a party who has everything to offer and a party who really has nothing to offer. And this is how God has chosen to enter into relationship with His people. He does it through covenants. And we see this throughout the Bible, with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, with David, and then finally with us through Jesus Christ, God coming to us as the superior and saying, this is how it's going to be. This is what I'm offering to you. This is what I want from you in return. Now, I should say um, that this covenant between God and Abraham, it's actually established in Genesis 15. Uh, What we see here in chapter 17 is, is a reaffirmation of the covenant But you can see here in Genesis 17 that God is the one defining the terms of the relationship, right? Abraham is not bartering here. He's not bargaining with God. God God says, "Uh, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to be a God to you and to your descendants after you, right? That's really the crux of, of the covenant, God pledging Himself to Abraham and His descendants God says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to be your God, you'll be my people. God is dictating the terms of the relationship. But God also tells Abraham what He expects of him, doesn't He? He says in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. That's all Abraham can do. He has nothing to offer. He's simply to surrender his life to the Lord who made these wonderful promises to him. Now, before we move on, it's it's interesting to point out uh, that the New Testament makes it clear that you and I are actually saved in accordance with this covenant that God made with Abraham. We might say that our salvation is is like chartered or something here in Genesis 17. This is what Paul says in in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendant, and heirs according to the promise. So, in Genesis 17, God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. In Galatians 3, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you are are Abraham's seed. You You are among his descendants. You are one of those people bound up in that everlasting covenant made way back in Genesis. You are among these children of Abraham whom God, by grace alone, has pledged Himself to. But again, that, that just helps us see that when we come to Jesus, God's not doing something altogether new or, or, or different, is He? God's not scrapping His previous plan and and, and starting over with a new plan. It's not like, you know, in the Old Testament we have God's plan A, and then the New Testament God's like, whoop, that didn't work, now we have to go to plan B. No, it's all one plan of redemption. And that's plain to see if you, if you really think about it and begin to process these promises and the full outworking of these promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 17, I mean, Matthew's gospel makes it clear in the very first chapter that that from Abraham would come Jesus, and so as God promises to Abraham back in Genesis 17 that he will be the father of many nations, we can't help but think of the gospel going out to the nations post-Pentecost. And when God promises Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings will come from him, we can't help but see that ultimately as a reference to the king of kings coming from Him. And as God says to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you, we can't help but see there the cross, right? Whereby God would remove our sins from us in order that we might be reconciled to Him and live in relationship with Him, in order that we might be His people and He might be our God. Okay, it's in Jesus that all of these covenant promises in Genesis 17 really come into focus. So, that's the first word, right? Covenant, covenant. The second word is circumcision. I feel kind of exhausted. I talked about sexual immorality this morning, and I'm getting to circumcision. I feel like one part of the body's been way too much focused today, but anyways, we'll just get it out of the way for a while. The word circumcision appears in some way, shape, or form nine times in our text. And what circumcision is, is the sign of the covenant. You see that in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Think for a moment of of a wedding ring when a man and woman are married they enter into a covenant which is which is bound together by promises and oaths and vows and then they give each other rings as a sign of their covenant right when we look at our wedding rings we're meant to remember the covenant that we've made with our spouse our wedding rings are a sign of the marriage covenant Circumcision, back in the Old Testament, is meant to serve a similar purpose. It's a sign in the flesh of God's everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants to be their God. And it's a reminder to Abraham and his descendants of the need to walk before God in faith and to be blameless. Now, what's the significance of this sign? And this is really what we need to latch on to see sort of the continuity with baptism But what's the significance of this sign of circumcision? Well, in the first place, the fact that this sign was applied to the part of the body it was is a vivid reminder that God's covenant extended to the next generation. That's the significance of that part of it. In the second place, the Bible uh, uses the word uh, uncircumcised and unclean synonymously. We see that in Isaiah 52 verse 1, for instance. And so it seems that circumcision sort of signified the removal of spiritual uncleanness from God's people. We might say that it was the outward sign marking an inward reality. The, the, the circumcision signified the removal of spiritual uncleanness. It sort of signified the washing away of one's sins, if you will. Third, the sign of circumcision set God's people apart from their unbelieving neighbors. Uh, you might remember that David uh, refers to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17 with the derogatory term You uncircumcised Philistines. Circumcision set God's people apart as unique, as distinct, as belonging to God. It set them apart from their unbelieving neighbors. And that way it was almost like a brand that a rancher would put on his cattle to set them apart from other cattle out in the pasture. Lastly, in the Old Testament, circumcision is a sign of faith. It's a sign of faith. You'll notice here in Genesis 17 that the sign of circumcision is spoken about in such a way that it's tempting to ask whether or not circumcision is actually what saves a person. All right, we see this in verse uh, 14, for instance. Any uncircumcised Male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That almost makes it sound, doesn't it? Like circumcision is the means by which Abraham and his children will be saved. As if they just undergo this rite and they'll be saved. Of course, we know that's not how it is. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul goes through great pains to make the point that Abraham was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by circumcision. There's nothing he did to earn or merit God's favor. It's all of grace received through faith. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, the Scripture says. And then, of course, we have the other example of of Esau. Esau was circumcised, and yet Esau was not saved. He was lost, right? So, So, when we take the whole testimony of Scripture, it's clear that circumcision itself, in and of itself, saves no one. And yet, even still, it's spoken of as if it saves. Now, why is that? Well, it's because circumcision... Uh, in the Old Testament, was the first step that the obedience of faith required, and because it was the first step that the obedience of faith required, uh, if a person refused to be circumcised, they didn't even take the first step of faith. <laughs> what does that say about a person's faith if they don't even take the first step of obedience? Well, it tells us that their faith is 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 empty. Their faith is non-existent. That seems to me to be the logic, all right? Circumcision is a sign of faith. It's an evidence in the Old Testament of a heart yielded to the God who commanded His people to be circumcised. Now, what's the extent of this sign? Who was this sign to be administered to? Well, we see the answer to that in verses 11 through 13 here. The sign was for Abraham but it was not just for Abraham. The sign is to be applied to every male in his house, including his children, already in their infancy. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. That too is interesting, all right? That this sign that signifies faith isn't just for those who've exercised faith. No, it's to be applied also to the children of those who've exercised faith. Why is that? Well, it's because God's covenant is with them also. And this helps us see an important distinction. All right, Circumcision is not so much a sign of salvation as it is a sign of the covenant. We're getting a little bit deep here splitting hairs to some degree. Salvation is found in the covenant, yes, it is, but circumcision is primarily a sign of the covenant. That is, it seems, circumcision is less about what Abraham and his descendants have, and it's more about what God has promised to do for them when they put their faith in Him. Now, I don't think I'm telling you any breaking news when I say we don't practice circumcision anymore for spiritual purposes. <laughs> Health reasons, yes. Spiritual reasons, no. I have never performed a circumcision as an ordained minister. I'm thankful for that. They don't call us in to circumcise babies. It doesn't concern us. And of course, the reason it doesn't concern us is because We believe that the spiritual significance of circumcision has been rendered obsolete. The practice of circumcision is one of those bloody rituals of the Old Testament that was meant to point God's people forward to the blood that would be shed once for all on the cross. But now that Christ has come, now that His blood has been shed once and for all for the forgiveness of sins, there is no more need for the shedding of blood in our relationship with God. There's no more need for the bloody sacrifices. There's no more need for the blood of circumcision. The writer of Hebrews actually says that. You might remember there was also a controversy in the early church Should the Gentiles be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses? Some who were heavily Jewish influenced said, yes, they should be circumcised. The Apostle Paul and Peter said, no, no, they shouldn't be. And then the Jerusalem council convened to discuss this question, and they agreed. And we read about all of that in Acts chapter 15. All right, the council convenes, they decide circumcision is no longer necessary after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was part of the old order, part of the old way of doing things, part of the old wineskins, if you will. So, circumcision, the New Testament teaches this, has been rendered obsolete with the death, resurrection of Jesus. And yet, we believe that something has replaced it. What has replaced it? Well, let's ask this question before I just say baptism. What is it now that a person is supposed to do when they come to faith? Before Jesus' death and resurrection, it was be circumcised. What is it after Jesus' death and resurrection? What is it now that sets God's people apart from their unbelieving neighbors and identifies them as belonging to the people of God in the covenant community? What is the outward sign that now represents the forgiveness of sins and a new heart? What is it now in the New Testament that is so closely identified with salvation that we might be tempted to ask, like we did with circumcision, whether or not it actually saves a person. It's baptism. All right? Interestingly enough, Paul speaks about baptism and circumcision in the same breath in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Now, the catechism cites that. It says, baptism has replaced circumcision. It cites Colossians 2, 11, and 12 as the proof text. I don't think Colossians 2, 11, and 12 is quite as clear as the catechism would have you believe. I wish it just said, hear ye, hear ye, baptism has replaced circumcision. That would make my life way easier. Uh, that's, that's not what happens. And yet, baptism and circumcision, they are spoken about in the same breath in those verses, And those verses seem to suggest that the Colossian Christians, who were buying into the lie that they needed to be circumcised, um, don't need to be circumcised because they've already been circumcised spiritually. They've already received the new heart that God required, and this was signified in their baptism. That's how I take those verses, but again, I think those verses aren't quite as plain as the catechism. Would have you believe, and as some paedo-baptists like us would have you believe. So, the New Testament indicates, uh, I think, and when we start to draw the parallels between the two signs, that baptism, it has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And that, you know, the sign would be replaced with a new sign uh, shouldn't surprise us, right? Because this sort of thing happens, much of Old Testament practice was repackaged and made uh, new after the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? In the Old Testament, they celebrated the Passover. We don't celebrate the Passover. The Passover has been renewed, uh, made new, and repackaged into what? The Lord's Supper, right? That's sort of the the replacement, and and, and in the Old testament, God's people gathered for worship on the Sabbath day, right? We don't gather for worship on the Sabbath day. We gather for worship on Sunday because we believe that the Lord's Day looks back on what the Sabbath day looked forward to. And the Lord's Supper looks back on what the Passover looked forward to, and baptism, I would say, looks back on what circumcision Looked forward to. So, that we would exchange, you know, the sign of circumcision for a new sign isn't strange. In fact, that's exactly what happens on several occasions throughout Scripture when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, the question is asked, right? Okay, so baptism is the sign of the covenant. I'll grant you that. And actually, some Baptists won't even grant you that. They, 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 don't, they just say baptism is a sign of, of faith, that's a big difference between us and people who baptize adults. Baptism is a sign of faith. I would say baptism is a sign of, of the covenant. They would say baptism is a sign of what I've done for God. We would say, no, baptism is a sign of what God has done for us, right? Those are the differences going on there. But, but, but let's, let's land here. Baptism is a, is a sign of the covenant. The question then is asked, should the children of believers be baptized? That's the last question we're left with. And as I've said before, this is a point where we need to remain humble. I think that's wise. There are godly Christians who I admire, you probably admire, who think differently about us than this. Um, I'm going to remain humble here, but as to whether infants should be baptized, if I say no, I'm going to lose my ordination, so I guess the answer is yes. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, we believe they should be, right? We believe they should be. We've established that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. The spiritual import of circumcision is now found in the practice of baptism. We come to the New Testament, and do we see anywhere in the New Testament that the children of believers who were, who were included under the Old Covenant uh, are, are now excluded under the New Covenant? Do we see that anywhere? I would say No. In fact, I would say the New Testament indicates just the opposite. It indicates that our children are still very much included in God's covenant. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says the children of believers are holy. There's something unique, something distinct about them. And then on three occasions throughout the New Testament, we hear of people coming to Christ, and after that person is converted, we're told he or she is baptized along with their entire household. That happens two times in Acts 16 alone, and certainly as we read in the New Testament about about households being baptized, we need to be reminded of what we read in Genesis 17, 23, that Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his household, or bought with his money, every male, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. Right? So, those household baptisms in the New Testament, I think, I believe, are pointing us back to the household circumcisions of the Old Testament and, and joining. The sign of baptism with the sign of circumcision as ultimately the sign of God's covenant. Of course, we might add too that in the New Testament, God's covenant is much more expansive. Right? Now it's not only men who receive the sign, it's also women, it's not only Jews who receive the sign, it's also Romans and Greeks and Africans and Europeans. I mean, everything about the New Covenant is bigger and better. And so, it seems strange, I think, that the children of believers who were included under the Old Covenant would be excluded under the New Covenant. I want to close with these words from G.I. Williamson. Two paragraphs. This is his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. It's actually awesome if you want to study it for yourself. Um, This is what he writes. It is simply not true, then, as opponents of infant baptism claim that there is no difference between the children of believers and the children of unbelievers. There is a difference. True, the Bible itself says that there is no difference by nature, but there is a difference by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and God has graciously chosen to be a God to us and to our children, Acts 2.39. That is why there is a difference between our children and other children, the difference is that our children are brought up within the Lord's congregation. From the very first beginning of life, they are in the way of the saving ordinances of God. They are under the Word and the sacraments. In a true church of Christ, they will come to know the way of salvation, and that is not true by far of the children of unbelievers. This does not mean that we may assume that our children are elect and regenerate, Neither, by the way, may we assume the opposite. God does not tell us to live on the basis of assumptions, but in the way of covenant faithfulness and hope in His promise. God certainly will preserve His church through the line of the generations. For the promise is to you and your children, declared Peter, at the very threshold of the present era, as many as the Lord our God will call. And he says this, take a good look at the church today, and you will see one thing quite clearly if you are discerning. Most of those who constitute a faithful church today were nurtured within it as covenant children. Yes, by all means, the sign of baptism must be given to children. This would not be the right thing to do, obviously, if salvation were not a gift from God from start to finish. But that is exactly what it is. For this reason, infant baptism now, like infant circumcision in Abraham's era, is an eloquent sign of what God does in saving His children. There's a lot to chew on for you for the week, so you want to talk more about that, give me a call. We'll talk more about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, and again, Lord, on uh, this matter, which has uh, been one in which the church has landed on different places uh, in the last couple hundred years, we pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity of mind. Uh, to know how to serve you well in it, to understand the wonders and glories of your grace uh, in light of the great covenant sign of baptism. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you stand up for the parting blessing and then we'll close with a song. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Number 262. Number 262. I think that's in the blue book. 262. My faith. Nope, nope. Must be in the gray book. Gray book. My faith looks up to Thee, and we'll read verses 1, 3, and 4, One, or sing verses 1, 3, and 4, 262.